The coronavirus quarantine has changed just about everything in our lives. That's certainly true for our kids as well. While they've already been spending several hours a day engaged with their smartphones, the stay-at-home order and school shutdowns have given them more time to fill with their eyes on their screens. One of the dangers is that this gives them more time to find pornography and more time for pornography to find them. What can parents do to engage in constructive conversations about God's design for his good gift of sexuality and the dangers of pornography's expression of broken sexuality? Stick with us as Jason Soshenik and I engage in a conversation with Michael John Cusick, author of the book Surfing for God, on this episode of Youth Culture Matters. From the Center for Parent Youth Understanding, this is Youth Culture Matters. If you're a parent, youth worker, educator, counselor, grandparent, or anyone else who cares about kids, we're glad you've joined us for this practical, informative, and hope-filled podcast. This is a place where together we talk and think Christianly about the rapidly changing world of today's children, teens, and young adults. Well, welcome everybody to another episode of Youth Culture Matters. I'm Walt Mueller here in the CPYU studios, sitting alone as we continue to social distance with the coronavirus pandemic. Chris Wagner is producing all this. I can see him, but he's not here across from me. I see him virtually as he's sitting in his bedroom at home uh, directing all this. Thanks, Chris, for doing that. And Jason is joining us from out on the West Coast as well. Uh, where the curve has dropped, my understanding is. Is that correct, Jason? Yeah, we're flattening it, but we'll see what that means for uh, being stay-at-home order. Yeah, yeah. So we're all still stay-at-home, and a couple of of things we've been doing here at CPYU is we've been really working hard to, I guess because a lot of people don't really want to hear about youth culture per se and some of the new developments in youth culture, but they want to be able to respond to this cultural reality of this pandemic that we've never experienced before in our lifetime. Uh, we've been working to address some of these issues as, uh, you know, parents and youth workers are trying to think about how to respond to kids, you know, talking about things like anxiety, how to use technology. We recorded a podcast with Carl Truman and Duffy Robbins about thinking about death, you know, something we need to mm-hmm. be pondering and, and thinking about here as that rises to the surface. And today we're actually going to jump into a conversation about kids and pornography, really adults and pornography, all, all of us in pornography. It's something we've talked about here at CPYU for quite some time. Jason, we've addressed yes. this as well through our Sexual Integrity Initiative, and we'll point some people later to some resources that they can download from that. Uh, but this, this topic we want to address is Jason brought this up uh, because he thought it would be timely with this pandemic. Talk a little bit about that, Jason, you know, what drove us Absolutely. to this. Well, you, we have to remember that as we're cooped up in our homes and access to internet like never before, uh, the numbers are going to show that most likely we're going to have an increase in those that have habitually been looking at or maybe even have become addicted to, to pornography. And uh, especially that's true for many of our listeners who have uh, who are youth workers or parents that have youth at home. Um, maybe for the first time being exposed or maybe uh, continuing to be exposed over the course of this time. So I just thought that one of the most pertinent conversations that we could probably have in the midst of this uh, is a conversation on pornography. One of the things that stri- is striking in the midst of this is we're getting offered all of these free services. In Europe, Pornhub actually provided its uh, service for free. I don't know if that's continuing to exist, but one of the things that we recognize is that if it's free, um, we say this: it's, if it's it, pornography today is 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 uh, accessible, anonymous, and affordable. Affordable meaning free, and so that is something that is happening at a higher rate than ever before. So, having this conversation, I think, is timely and needed. Yeah, and Jason, you raised my awareness to our guest and some of the things our guest has written. If would you go ahead and introduce yes. introduce Michael? Yes, absolutely. So we were uh, fortunate enough to have Michael John Cusick on the podcast today. One of the things that he did uh, is, and I'll let him explain here in a moment, but wrote a wonderful book called Surfing for God, Discovering the Divine Desire Beneath the Sexual Struggle. And I would love for Michael, rather than myself, to talk about the book and talk about the ministry that you do there in Colorado. So welcome. Oh, it's good to be here. And Jason, good to talk with you again. And I appreciate uh, 
all of what you guys are doing for youth ministry and, and helping to educate folks about young people's lives and souls. Uh, I wrote the book Surfing for God almost eight years ago. Uh, my background is as an academic and a professor and a licensed psychotherapist. And um, I, I went from doing that full-time as a professor to part-time and a full-time counselor. And uh, in the early 2000s, the issue of sexual addiction and porn was just exploding. But mostly my background is I'm 55 years old. And when I was 29 uh, and in ministry, I was caught in a double life where I had a porn addiction and a full-blown sexual addiction. And my world blew apart. And uh, by God's grace, Julianne and I are married 29 years later uh, with a great story of redemption. But when I set out to write this book, there were really two approaches. One was an approach where uh, anybody who couldn't stop sexually sinning was an addict, and therefore you had to go down a path of 12-step meetings, and once an addict, always an addict, and that became your identity. And in certain cases, uh, people became dependent upon those meetings. Um, the other approach was uh, a, a sin management approach, a just say no approach that left it up to willpower and more accountability and that kind of thing. And both of those were very external approaches in different ways. So I set out, because of my own journey, asking, how did I heal? What in the world got me into this mess? Why could uh, I not get out of it despite my best efforts as a Christian. And I, I like to think of it as a soul care approach. So it's an inside out approach. And that when we understand that uh, it's about our heart and it's about our brokenness, that there's actually a path to walk as a disciple of Jesus, where it's not just that God strengthens us to say no and to resist temptation, but that uh, the root issues are addressed. And Pornography and other forms of sexual sin and brokenness are, are no longer compelling. They're no longer controlling us. And that's the story behind the book. And today uh, I run a ministry in Colorado called Restoring the Soul, where we do intensive counseling, uh, largely with Christian leaders, youth pastors, uh, pastors of all kinds, ministers, missionaries, nonprofit leaders. And we've been doing that for 18 years at Restoring the Soul. People come to our programs for one or two weeks at a time, three hours a day, and whether they're looking for proactive strengthening their marriage or whether things have fallen apart or whether it's an individual who's looking to address unresolved issues or baggage from their past, we really help them go to the deep issues with clinical wisdom and knowledge, but also with a Jesus-shaped approach to uh, how to how to live in a place of indwelling with Christ and to really align our hearts in a place of freedom. Mm. I I like how you talk about the inside out approach. I've never heard it stated that particular way, but you know when we think about it draws to mind what Blaise Pascal said about that God-shaped vacuum that exists in all of us and certainly so many of our diversions right now, pornography included or the idols in our lives, the things that become habitual are efforts on our part, uh, conscious or unconscious perhaps, to fill that hole in the soul. You actually, on the back of your book, uh, you have that great quote from G.K. Chesterton, you know, the man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. Talk a little bit about that, you know, our soul and the way that you are targeting that r rather than sin management or behavior modification, but you know, what the, what the deep, deep needs that we have are that, that tend to uh, feed this. Yeah, you bet, Walt. And, and that's a great point that uh, that quote from G.K. Chesterton, the person knocking on the brothel door is knocking for God. That's how I name the book, because people will often say, well, are you a surfer? Or what's this book about, Surfing for God? But <laughs> when I read that quote, I thought, well, the person surfing the internet for porn is surfing for God, or the person looking to hook up on an app is is hooking for God, if you will. And um, shortly after the book came out, I think the, the word surfing the internet lost some of its novelty, but that's really what that's about. And it, and it, and it reveals the fact that uh, we're, we're looking for something more than sexual release. We're looking for something more than naked bodies. Eugene Peterson translated in the message in 1 Corinthians 6, 
that passage, you know, about don't you know that you become one with a prostitute, he said that sex is more than just skin on skin. It's as much spiritual mystery as physical fact. And so sex across the board is, is certainly for procreation. It's certainly for the pleasure between a husband and wife and the covenant of marriage. But it's also meant to be a signpost, a symbol, a metaphor, and a foretaste of our present and eternal relationship with God. Uh, the great saints of old used to speak of ecstatic union in their relationship with God that there was something about living connected to and in that place of the indwelling presence of Christ that uh, didn't, didn't lift us up and out of the world, but it brought us, at times, a kind of ecstasy that was transcendent, and it, and it gave us a sense of all of our deepest needs being met in the same way that an infant, uh, having the gaze of a loving parent, would feel perfectly protected and cared for and all of their needs met. So really, uh, Another, I guess the main point of my book and what I'd want listeners to hear today, uh, I'll quote the great philosopher Aquinas from the 15th century. He said that beneath every sinful behavior, there's a legitimate God-given appetite. And so in my sexual addiction and in the people that I work with, including many Christian leaders that we won't be surprised are struggling with sexual issues as well, beneath that behavior that we hate, there's actually this good desire, this godly desire for connection, for comfort, for affection, to be accepted and to belong. And of course, in terms of pornography, most of that is fantasy-based, but even in the fantasy, uh, chemicals are released in our body and our brain says, well, you're actually connected to another person. As you say this, it reminds me a lot of what I just read. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with Christopher West as he talks about yeah. theology of the body. And he has a new book out. Oh, I don't have it in front of me, but I think the title I, I just finished reading it is Your Your Body Tells God's Story, something like that, where he unpacks some of this. And, and he actually, you know, the mystery of our union with Christ and uh, the church is the bride of Christ. It, what you're talking about here with that, uh, you know, the now and the eternal in terms of our relationship with God is just, it is just so fascinating and takes us way beyond the lies, the incomplete uh, narrative that our culture has on sex and sexuality, the wrong narrative, and it's just a beautiful, beautiful thing. So uh, I appreciate you saying that. When you, when you talk about the folks you are counseling, what are some of the recurrent themes you're hearing, especially from people in ministry, about, you know, when they look back at their lives and, and the road that they've walked, where did they, where did they go off the rails? Where, what are the kinds of things that we need to be aware of, especially I'm thinking of young youth workers or parents who are working with kids? Because Jason talked about just you know, how accessible, affordable, uh, anonymous pornography is now. We know that if they don't find it, it's going to find them, and sometimes at very young ages. What have you learned uh, that can help us stay moving in a, in a God-glorifying and a God-honoring direction with, with our sexuality? Wow, what a great question. Um, I was a youth minister. I, I worked with Young Life for six years as a volunteer leader and almost went on staff with them. And um, the, the context of me coming to be a Christian was age 16 through that youth ministry. And how I wish that somebody had asked that question uh, of my leader or to me during that time, to, to ask the question, what's going on? What's this about? And if I answered the question back then, why am I doing what I'm doing, which of course is the question that the Apostle Paul throws out to us in Romans chapter 7, and it's a, a legitimate question, and I think God gives us permission not just to obey, but to actually say, what's going on? What's up with this? Um, I would have answered three ways initially, and I think it's important to see the traditional responses before we actually see the solution. But the first thing is, I would have said, I'm just not disciplined enough. And um, I was a very, very, very disciplined high school kid, not academically or with school, but with things I cared about. And I would get up and do the 6.30 a.m. Bible studies. I had paper routes that I'd get up at 4 a.m. And despite that, memorizing scripture, 
um, a lot of scripture in high school, I would say if I was just more disciplined and if I just had more willpower, then I'd be able to overcome this. And I kind of saw it as a, as a deficiency. Uh, the second thing is that if I was more spiritual, so if I read my Bible more and did more youth ministry, and if I brought more kids to my youth group, and if I listened to more Christian music, then somehow I'd become more godly, and that, that greater level of godliness would be the key to unlock this problem. And then thirdly, I thought it was my sexual desire. I, I had great shame and contempt for my sexual desires. And I remember driving with my, my leader, uh, who was on staff with the youth ministry one day, and I said, I'm just praying for God to take away my sexual desires. And he was drinking a Diet Coke and just, you know, did one of those spit takes. And he said, oh, brother, God doesn't want you to, to let your sexual desires die. And, and it was shortly after that that I read the quote from C.S. Lewis, who said, it's not that our desires are too strong, it's that they're too weak. That we're like a child in a mud puddle playing, knowing that there's no such thing as a vacation at the sea. And so uh, struggles with pornography and compulsive masturbation and other sexual sins are really about the, the lack of longing for and living in that desire for what God really created us for, which is not just something as simple as marriage. Of course, that's God's context. But what he created us for is deep connection, to be seen, to be soothed, to feel safe and secure in another relationship where we can be who we really are and get our needs met. And without that, we will settle for the counterfeit. Um, and so what it ended up being about is disconnection from that kind of relationship, from brokenness inside of us that is either some kind of a wound that we bear or a, because of something done to us that shouldn't have happened or a wound of uh, omission that is something that should have been done that didn't happen. And then I think the biggest piece that fuels pornography struggles and addiction, and this may be confusing for a minute, is shame. And writers and thinkers like Brene Brown and Dr. Kurt Thompson, who wrote a book called The Soul of Shame, and others have, have helped us understand that guilt is what we have done wrong, and shame is a belief that's usually put upon us by the accuser or through some kind of a, a, a relationship that it's a lie that says we haven't just done wrong, we are wrong. Guilt says I've done something bad, and shame says I am bad. And shame is this judgment upon ourselves from outside or inside that we're fundamentally flawed, that we're unlovable, that we're unworthy, and that we're less than. And there's a whole set of beliefs that go with that. But when a person is, is covered in shame or has that on the inside, shame from Genesis chapter 3 in the Garden of Eden through all of history always leads to distance and disconnection. And then that leads to, I have to get my needs met on my own. And pornography is the perfect solution to getting our needs met on our own and being self-sufficient. Mm. Mm. Can you, I would love to even unpack, because what was described and discussed within that is, is our sexual desire. It, it started with that conversation with your youth pastor. And I think that one of the things that so often is misunderstood or afraid to be discussed in most youth ministries is the dynamic of sexual desire. And I don't even know if we've really even wanted to because we're not really sure what God says about it. So could you just unpack that aspect of this conversation with regards to sexual desire? Because even in the subtitle of your book, Discovering the Divine Desire Beneath Sexual Struggle. And so maybe discuss what that divine desire is. How do we as youth workers, how do we as parents discuss sexual desire in a way that frames the beauty of how God designed it? Yes, that's a, that's a great question. So the, the first thing I would say is that sexual desire 100% of the time is God-given, and that the desires, um, uh, there's nothing about our desires that are wrong. If you take the most perverse sexual desire, that desire is really just a misdirection and a misplaced legitimate desire from God. 
And so they're from God, period. And I think there's a lot of people that think, well, if on a scale of 1 to 10, my sexual desire is a 2, that would be godly. But if it's a 7 or a 10, then it's not godly. 100% of the time, it's from God. The second thing is that sexual desire is embodied. And back to Walt referring to Christopher West, who I think is the most brilliant living thinker today on the idea of sexuality and spirituality and his gift to Christianity is he unpacked all of the uh, prolific writings of uh, Carol Wotila, the late great Pope John Paul, now St. John Paul II. And um, all of that obscure writing has been brought into his material, and I just can't say enough about him. But the embodied aspect of our sexual desire is what we is what we don't like. It would be nice if we could compartmentalize it and put it in a drawer and pull it out, but a woman can walk down the street and see a handsome man, and a man can walk down the street and see a beautiful woman, and something triggers inside of us that is not sin, uh, it's not lust, it's just a reaction. Like when I'm sitting in my office right now and I'm looking at the Rocky Mountains. To the right are the Flatirons of Boulder, to the left are the foothills of Denver. And every morning when I come into my office, sometimes before the sun rises, I pull up the shade and I go, oh, and it's just breathtaking. And I've lived here 30 years. And there's a sense of awe. And so very often, sexual desire is awakened within us when there is a sense of awe, when there is a sense of gratitude, where there is a sense of beauty, and in particular, how all of that is relationally focused. You know, part of the awe and the gratitude and the beauty is that male and female um, are meant to be for one another. Um, and so for a life to be generated, there are certain things to be true about a male where in, in body parts and genitals, uh, blood needs to flow and there needs to be a sense of strength and power. That's why we use the word impotence. And a woman needs to be uh, awakened and receptive and to receive. And through that interaction, a new life grows. And sexuality is much more than just that literal genital aspect of sexuality. It's also metaphorical so that we are meant to be alive and strong and awakened and to move into our world and into our relationships so that something would be released from us and deposited into another so that life would grow. And therefore, the single person or the married person is meant to be sexually generative. And so sexual desire that is physical can lead to physical sex, intercourse, sexual genital contact, but our sexual desire can also lead to a kind of connecting and moving into the world uh, to bring life and to bring it to flourish. And you know, one of the differences between sexual desire that is what I would call holy and sexual desire that is in the category of lust is that lust and sexual desire that is not really other-centered and loving desires to possess the other. You know, and so we use language like, oh, I've got to have you, or I need to take you now. And that, that becomes a transaction. And sex was never meant to be transactional. It was meant to be intimate, which is I bring who I am, you bring who you are, body, mind, heart, soul, and spirit, and there's actually something that's bigger and better as a result. Transaction is that uh, I bring what I have to bring in order for you to give me what you may or may not want to give me, but there's this exchange that we're both going to benefit from, and transaction is never really love. What every human heart longs for, both sexually, emotionally, spiritually, and relationally, is to be known and loved without having to do anything, but mm -hmm. just for being who we are. This is so good. Michael, thank you. I, we're going to need to take a break, but I want to continue this conversation because it's just really going to be super helpful for those that are listening. Thank you for listening to Youth Culture Matters. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be right back. In an effort to help you help the kids you know and love navigate their emerging sexuality to the glory of God, we've launched a sexual integrity initiative here at CPYU. Thanks to a generous grant from a company called DAS, 
You can access our Sexual Integrity Initiative and a growing number of resources for free by visiting the website at sexualintegrityinitiative.com. As we continue our conversation with Michael John Cusick about his book, Surfing for God, and what's happening with kids and pornography, and even adults and pornography, and God's good design for sex and how we've distorted that, I want to remind people that we have here at CPYU Uh, In conjunction with Jason and his organization, Project 619, a sexual integrity initiative that we began a few years ago, and there are all kinds of resources on there that are free. You can go there, uh, check out all sorts of media clips. We have links to podcasts. We have links to our daily radio spot, uh, Youth Culture Today, and all kinds of downloads and handouts that youth workers you can pass on to parents. And two, I'll point you to uh, one just recently updated Chris Wagner worked on this, again, to update it, uh, a little one-page handout on children and pornography that you can download, which defines pornography, talks about the effects of pornography, uh, what to do when you discover your kids have accessed pornography, along with some statistics, and then a longer, uh, what we call a parent's primer on Internet pornography. So uh, go ahead and avail yourselves of those things. They're there for you, and they're free, and we want to invite you to take advantage of that. Let me turn it back to Jason Uh, You had a a question you wanted to continue with here. Well, I just wanted to pick up where we left off before the break, and that's this, the question of embodiment. And and maybe the way that desire uh, moves us into community, there there is something that I found striking. There's a mutual friend that we have that that actually mentioned uh, this. After the pandemic is over, there's going to be moments where we walk into a store, or we're seeing someone, uh, th- this was a, a male sees a female, and instead of being sexually aroused, they're, they're aroused in a way that's, that's holy and significant, and, and it, it just simply, they're just excited to see another human body, another human person, and to just wrap their arms around them and give them a hug and be like, oh my gosh, this is, it's so good to see you. I'm so grateful to be in community. And I'm just wondering if, uh, the pandemic is going to potentially uh, move us to a place where we have a better understanding of that. I, I love the way that you even spoke about sexually uh, generative. Um, I would even love to go a little bit further with that because there is something that we can we can so often get negative with the pandemic, but I would like to talk a little bit about some of the positives before we dive into maybe some of the consequences that are negative from the pandemic. Well, I, I appreciate you bringing this up because it, it really is so important to look at what is God doing in all of this? And I'm a person who believes a thousand percent that that God does not send plague or disease, and he is not the author of suffering or pain. He does have this uh, profound sovereign capacity to exploit it and to use the brokenness of the world and the fall. But you know, we're told to pray, thy kingdom come and thy will be done. And every day I pray that same thing not just on earth as it is in heaven, but thy kingdom come and thy will be done in me, in my marriage, in my family, on my cul-de-sac, my neighborhood, my community. And so um, the kingdom is here, and the kingdom is coming in the midst of a horrible pandemic. And so I, I would pray for us and for your listeners to have the eyes of our heart opened so that we would see what God is doing. And I, I think one of the things that our, our mutual friend was talking about is that there there will be an awakening and a, a, a rediscovering of our, our desperate and real need for relationship, for actual relationship. It's one thing to have friends. It's one thing to have social media connections, but to have face-to-face ongoing just relationship of hanging out and having barbecues and blowing out birthday candles and uh, in, in pandemic or non-pandemic times, going to funerals and weddings and doing life together over a period of time. And I, and I think that our culture has come to a crescendo, hopefully it's a crescendo, where we've largely been able to get by without relationships. And, and many of our relationships are simply transactional, getting things done, doing life together, etc. So I think that's going to be one uh, benefit. And I think we're already beginning to see with people in Italy and around the world uh, singing 
from their uh, balconies and from people howling at certain hours of the evening to show gratitude for first responders and people dancing in their street and things like that. We're, we're beginning to see uh, an awakening of joy and freedom and laughter and uh, play. And I think one of the marks of the kingdom of God is childlikeness. Jesus said in Matthew 18 that if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, which of course was not going to heaven, but heaven happening here, that reality of abundance, if you want that, you've got to become like a little kid, like a little child. And that's dancing in your front yard, doing helicopters and cartwheels and wearing silly outfits and getting mud on your face. And, you know, it's crazy how people are doing things because they can't. Uh, and and um, I, I, I just hope that that comes back to the world because we've been so serious in our lives and so disconnected because we live at this this violent pace that is is really damaging to the soul. This has has brought us to our knees and slowed us down um, and, and, and brought up issues and fears that are really important to face and integrate into our lives to become whole and holy people. I, I really like that. What, in the midst of this, you know, as we ask the question, uh, God, what are you doing? What are some conversations, I'm going off on a rabbit trail here, but what are some conversations we can have within our homes, husband to wife, you know, spouse to spouse, um, and then parent to child, that raise, I mean, you're raising a good point here, but things that would prompt us to maybe look more deeply, to, to stand back from the, I like how you say a violent pace. I was thinking frenetic. You use violent. How can we jump back from that, slow down, and just stop and really listen to, to hear? Are there some, some prompts you could think of? You know, as a counselor, I'm asking for some counsel here. Yeah, so what we're doing in my family is when we normally uh, will, you know, I, I would live on power bars and Diet Coke. Uh, I would never cook a meal. I like to cook for other people, but uh, not, not for myself. But we're sitting down as a family and having a meal every night together. And um, I'm ashamed to say that we don't always do that. Different schedules, different paces, and uh, food has become transactional and, and essential because you know I have to put something in my body. But meals were meant to be relational. They were meant to be celebrations. Uh, you know, isn't it isn't it interesting how God spends so much time in the Old Testament uh, creating feasts so that people can actually celebrate and worship around food, and that that's part of. Uh, how we walk with God and in many liturgical traditions that's part of the church calendar. Um, another thing to do is a practice of gratitude and lament. Hmm. Uh, I, I had uh, the psychiatrist Kurt Thompson on my podcast who also wrote a book called The Anatomy of the Soul. I referred earlier to the soul of shame but um, he does a lot of work in helping people uh, to, to have an awareness of their bodies and does a lot of work around being known as a way of knowing God, that we know God as we are being known. And so what does it mean as a family, as a marriage, to be known during this time? And it's not about confessing sins, but it's about disclosing feelings and experiences. So Kurt suggests to start a journal, and this could be a note on one's phone, it could be a piece of paper or not, but uh, many of us have probably heard of a gratitude journal where you just write two or three or four things down that you're thankful for. And, you know, it could be the same thing every day if we don't get creative for this, like I'm thankful for my mom and my dad and my puppy and my grandma, you know, and, but to, to say, right, again, right now, I am thankful for the stunning peak in front of me that is covered with snow. Uh, I'm, I'm grateful, kind of, for the fact that it's April, what is today, the 17th, and yesterday we got four inches of snow on top of all the flowers that are sprouting up. So, you know, another, another day of, of white-covered beauty. I'm, I'm grateful for the freshness of the air as I walked outside this morning. I'm grateful for how my daughter is really flourishing during this time. So the gratitude is the easy part, but then... Thompson talks about 
a lament journal. And of course, we learn about lament and we can understand lament in all of the 150 psalms that are either about praise or lament. And, and lament is actually an act of faith. We sometimes believe that to feel sadness, to feel loss, to feel grief, to say, ouch, this hurts, or I, I miss blank, that that's somehow immature. And especially, you know, when there's 800 people a day in New York City that are dying, who am I? And isn't it stupid to say that I miss my friends or I'm sorry that I'm not going to be able to go to my friend's wedding or something like that. And, and yet the reality is uh, Jesus tells us that God has every hair on our head numbered and he cares about the small things. And so Kirk Thompson makes this stunning point. He says, if we can't grieve and feel the losses and the, the, the pain and the sorrow of the small things, we won't, eventually we will not feel the grief and the sorrow of the big things. If, if the small things don't matter, the big things won't matter. And if the big things won't matter, then nothing matters. And the first and greatest commandment when the Pharisees trapped Jesus and tried to get him to say the wrong answer, he said, the, 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 the biggest thing is to be wholehearted, to love God with all of your mind, heart, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And I think any listener would go, yeah, I want to love God wholehearted. That includes saying, God, if I'm going to love you wholehearted, that means today I have to say, I'm really sad that I can't have my men's Bible study face-to-face -face and drink our favorite coffee or have a bagel and cream cheese. It's just not the same on Zoom. Or I'm, I'm sad that my goldfish died during this pandemic because, because you know, I couldn't go to the store and get fish food. Those little things matter, and we can share those with one another. Um, and it could be as simple as sitting at the family dinner table or before bed or first thing in the morning, you play the high-low game. Hey, what was your high? What was your low today? Or as they do in Cub Scouts, what was your rose and what was your thorn? And, you know, without having to pull open the Bible and give 10 verses to know that this is a modeling of reality and a modeling of wholeheartedness. So uh, the, the rose was, here's these fun things. The thorn was, here's what hurt. Mm, that's good. My wife did that high-low thing intuitively the other night with our six-year-old grandkids, you know, before they went to bed. We, we oftentimes will, you know, now we can't see them other than through FaceTime. We'll read them a story. Uh, from the Jesus Storybook Bible, they'll follow along where they are. And she said, you know, Nolan, Lucy, what's one thing you're thankful for today? And what's one thing, you know, that was a disappointment that we need to, to pray about? And and so she, she just did that intuitively. I love that. You know, that's a great way. Because some of us, we are so out of step with relating to each other that we can't have these conversations because we haven't been eating together and if we can't have these little conversations about uh, things that we might think are trivial, how are we going to have deep conversations about the glorious matter of sex and sexuality? So uh, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to get—we've uh, been very practical, but we're going to get a bit more practical and look at some specific ways that this issue of sex, sexuality, and pornography can be addressed by parents and by youth workers in the midst of uh, the time that we have now and we've been given in this pandemic. So stick with us. We'll be right back. If you enjoy listening to Youth Culture Matters and would like to support the ongoing efforts of this ministry, you can do so by visiting cpyu.org giving to make a donation. Your prayers and financial support make this podcast possible. Welcome back to Youth Culture Matters, continuing our conversation with Michael Cusick. Uh, Michael, I, I did want to make sure we did a plug for your podcast before we went any further. Could you just describe what your podcast is and uh, where we might be able to find that so our listeners can check it out? Yeah, you bet. Our podcast is called Restoring the Soul, and you can find it on Apple and Google and all of the major platforms for that. You can also find it on our website, restoringthesoul.com, scrolling all the way to the bottom. And it's really 
a combination sometimes of interviews with authors and thinkers and then also presenting some of my own thinking from my book. And um, the, the mission statement of our podcast is to help close the gap between what we're meant to be and what keeps us from being all of that. Uh, this gap between what we believe but what we actually experience. That's great. Thank you so much. Um, and for our listeners, just a reminder, we always keep the notes at the, the bottom of the – or in the episode notes of the podcast, so we'll also include a link to that podcast, plus uh, Michael's book, uh, Surfing for God. I did want to, Walt's already mentioned this, but we would like to just get a little bit practical in the midst of this, um, because we're going to have conversations with our children, or there are going to be youth workers that have conversations with their students regarding having looked at pornography for the first time, continuing to look at pornography. So could you give us some practical tips for how uh, a parent or a youth worker might be able to dive into this conversation with uh, their student or their child? Yeah, you bet. Uh, I would say to spend about 1% of your time talking about filters, software, and accountability. Uh, well, let me change that. 1% of your time talking about filters and you know making sure that your parents have your password, and then 5% of your time about accountability, but not what I call cop accountability, where I'm going to write you a ticket or bust you when you sin, and not coach accountability where I'm going to try to inspire you and and cheer you on to be moral and to have integrity but cardiologist accountability and that's where uh, we're really talking about the heart and the other 94 percent would be about that uh, talking about what's going on inside of the kid or or in the case of the youth minister what's happening inside of them and in case of the parent what's happening inside of them uh, it's really a matter of three R's, and I'm not a big uh, acrostic or acronym guy, but the first would be recognition, and a recognition that there's a struggle and to actually tell the truth to ourselves. Uh, the chief characteristic of addiction, said Dr. Gerald May in his book Addiction and Grace, is self-deception, which of course is a biblical category. Uh, we lie to ourselves, we deceive ourselves long before we ever lie to anyone else. and that can take the form of, no, I'll be okay. This is only going to be one time. Or I'm, I'm only going to read the article. I'm not going to look at the picture. Or I'll, I'll just take a minute. And that kind of self-deception keeps us from grace, and it keeps us from being known and loved. Uh, but also to recognize what the real issues are, that these are legitimate, God-given desires that are being misplaced and misdirected because of how we mishandle our pain. And 100% of the time that when a person um, sins sexually, it's about some kind of mishandling our pain or discomfort or distress. And I think one of the ways that the pandemic is exposing pain is the pain of our loneliness, the pain of our disconnection. And that's not always just uh, a loneliness from other people, but it's a loneliness within ourself, a sense that there's nobody home, uh, that, I, that I don't actually inhabit my life, that I'm not present to my life. Um, so to recognize is the first step. The second is to relate. And I'm sure that you all have talked about this because what you do is, is youth culture, but we can't live any longer in this idea of parents having the talk with their kids about sex. It needs to be a lifelong conversation about sex and sexuality. And so that relating is talking about the reality of sex and sexual desire and relationships and loneliness and you know everything above and beyond genitals that sexuality is, the emotional aspect of it, the spiritual mystery. And in this, I would say that whether a person's a youth minister or a parent, that it's virtually impossible to do this with your kids if you haven't begun to explore and deal with your own sexuality. And I believe that the story of Genesis 3 tells us that every human being is sexually broken. Yep. And again, that doesn't mean that every person has been sexually abused or that every person has a sexual addiction, but that our masculinity or maleness, our femininity or femaleness has been wounded 
by living in the world. And, and those wounds are unique to who we are as men and women. And because of that pain that doesn't get transformed in us, that pain then becomes transmitted. So as a male, I bring a kind of pain into the world through my brokenness that can impact women and vice versa. Women with their wounds that are not healed transmit that into the world. And so as we begin to talk about the shame that we carry over sexuality, maybe because that's what we were given in our home because it wasn't talked about or we were told it was shameful or we saw parents reacting in negative ways uh, or because we ourselves were exposed to pornography or abuse somehow. If we don't deal with that, we will either disallow the conversation uh, or be very uncomfortable with the conversation um, or will somehow just be frozen and, and not engaged around it. And that's one of the things I see more often than not. So that relating is not just parent to child and youth minister to kid in their church um, in terms of spending time together, but it's actually talking about it. And then relating in terms of being able to cultivate, as, as Walt asked the question earlier, deeper connections and more meaningful interactions and to realize that in all relationships that the deepest longing of the human heart is to be known. And yet we're frightened to be known because since the fall, vulnerability and being known has led to pain and to shame and to rejection and to abandonment. Now, that's not from God, the Father of Jesus. That's from the human interaction out of the belief that we can't trust God and that we can be God and control our own world through being self-sufficient. So let me, let me um, go now from the abstract to the concrete. The, the first R was to recognize, the second R is to relate, and the third R is to regulate. And so um, really what, what all compulsiveness, if it's not just a one-time sexual sin, but if it becomes compulsive, what that compulsion is about is dysregulation and activation in our nervous system. You know, every strong emotion is tied to our nervous system. And when we feel an ache in our chest of loneliness or when we feel a pit in our stomach of emptiness or anxiety or fear or anger, that's in our nervous system. That's the embodiment that we talked about earlier. And rather than just trying to grit our teeth and flex our moral muscles, I think that the scriptures in their discussion of stillness and in uh, Isaiah uh uh, chapter 30, where it says, in repentance and rest is your salvation, in quietness and trust is your strength, comma, but you would have none of it. It's this statement where God is saying through, through Isaiah that I don't want you to come and give fragrances and offerings and burnt, burnt offerings and sacrifices. In our case, that might be, I don't want you to read your Bible for three more chapters or to pray longer. I just want you to bring your heart. And kind of like when, Walt, you talked about with your grandkids, hey, I'm feeling sad. Okay, let's talk to Jesus about that. To regulate is to name the emotions, the sensations, the perceptions inside of us. Like, I just am tense all the time. And then to be still, to know that he's God. And there's a number of different regulation, uh, calming, soothing exercises, and just this morning, I released a whole hour podcast on an acronym that I have called I Care, I C A R E, which is a way to regulate your body and to do soul care. Um, but it can be doing breathing, where four times you take a deep breath and hold it for a couple seconds and then just exhale and let your body settle. And then you count backwards from 10 and then you do it again four times. And then you count backwards from 30 to zero, and then you do it again, and just breathe four times. And the body can calm and center and get grounded. You know, there's a book by Brother Lawrence from centuries ago called Practicing the Presence of God, and um, I've heard people say over the years, well, I struggle to practice the presence of God or to, to know that he's there. And that's because we are not taught, and our culture doesn't encourage us to be present to ourselves. And, and sometimes the disconnection with others and with God is because we don't know how to be present to ourselves, to actually be home in our own body. 
And as we learn to do that just by being still, by being calm, by naming our feelings, then as we connect with others and as we come to God, he can actually meet us in that place of need as opposed to keeping that need further away. Um, on another practical level in my book, I talk about seven core desires uh, that most people can relate to. That beneath this behavior, there is a longing for attention, affection, affirmation, and acceptance, a longing for satisfaction, significance, and security. And each of those longings is usually what is the legitimate God-given longing uh, beneath the sinful behavior, that if we can tap into that and understand, oh, I'm, I'm looking to belong, to be accepted, or I, I'm looking to just have somebody wrap their arms around me and say, um, I want you and I've got you and you're okay, um, that can begin to make the difference. So, you know, what is the antidote to sexual sin and compulsion? It's, it's love and it's being known. And it's being loved as we are known. And all sexual sin is just a counterfeit opportunity and behavior to try to get those needs met by ourselves. And, mm. and Jesus is the God who says, I care about your heart. I care about what's in there. And it's out of that place that comes the fruit. So let's pay attention to that. Yeah, yeah, this is good. I know that we've uh, hit the time mark for you. So uh, I want to say thank you so much for coming on, Jason. Thank you. And to our listeners, uh, please remember to go to our uh, webpage, cpyu.org. Look for the player for this particular episode of the podcast. Scroll down. You'll see everything that Michael mentioned we've linked to there, plus more. Don't forget to visit our Sexual Integrity Initiative at sexualintegrityinitiative.com. When it comes to this podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Tell others about it. Give, a, give us a positive review and rating. You know, spread the word about it. And we will continue to work to equip you. Please pray for us uh, as we continue to navigate as you are through this coronavirus pandemic. We don't know when things are going to end or open up. But we trust that, as Michael said, as we've said on past podcasts, that God is doing something here. So, Michael, thank you. My pleasure. Yeah, Thank you for I, having me. I hope you have a great day. Jason, same to you. Thanks, Michael. And for everyone who's listening, thank you for joining us, and we'll look forward to chatting with you again on the next episode of Youth Culture Matters. Thanks for joining us for Youth Culture Matters, a podcast from the Center for Parent Youth Understanding. If you'd like to learn more about today's youth culture, visit our website at cpyu.org. And if you have any questions, comments, or feedback, email us at podcast at cpyu.org.